Hey everyone, welcome to the Dorinda Wilson podcast. I'm Dorinda Wilson, wife to one for 31 years, mom to eight, and nana to six. I'm also um, a veteran homeschooling mom of 25 years. I'm the author of The Unhurried Homeschooler, a simple, mercifully short book on homeschooling, and Grace for a Mom's Heart, which is a 31-day devotional written specifically for homeschool moms. Um, you can check both of those out on my website, DorindaWilson.com, or you can go to Amazon. I also have a new book coming out in June. It'll be released June 29th called The Four-Hour School Day, and I can hardly wait to get it into the hands of as many parents as possible. This is going to be for the on-the-fence parent, the at-the-fence oh, at parent, the on-the-fence parent, and the parent who's been homeschooling or just started homeschooling. It's, it's basically going to be um, just a huge dose of encouragement that you can do this and it doesn't have to take seven hours a day. Now, if you're a new listener, I just want to welcome you. Thank you for being here. I hope you find a great amount of encouragement today. We're doing something a little bit different than what we normally do, but I'm excited about it. And for all my faithful listeners, thank you for being here once again. Um, you are all such an encouragement to me. Um, I also want to encourage all of you to go to my uh, website to subscribe there where you can be the first to receive all the newest information on my new book coming out, including bonuses and uh, pre-order incentives. So as I mentioned before, I'm doing something a little different today, and I'm super excited about it. This is actually part two. Um, we published part one um, about a week ago, and this is part two to uh, talking about the role of government. I mean, I think most of us have realized in recent times how little we know about the Constitution and specifically the role of government. And I mentioned in the other podcast that I've actually been a little bit embarrassed by how little that I actually know. But you know what? I got over it really quickly and I decided it was time to educate myself and as many other people who wanted to know as well. So I got together with several other women, two teachers, um, some homeschooling moms, and we formed a concerned citizens group in our community that meets one, once a month. And uh, we're educating ourselves on all kinds of things. But last month we invited just a lovely young lady who holds a PhD in political science to come and invite um, and we invited her to come and share that same information that she shared there here on the podcast because it was so valuable. It was just a lively and uh, it was a hugely beneficial meeting. And I just wanted you all to, to get that same information because I think it's absolutely critical. So we encourage you to gather your family, listen in um, as we do the second part to this uh, two-part series. We've kept it to about 30 minutes because we know it can be a little tough to keep kids there much longer than that. We want to, what does my husband say? He says the the mind can only take in what the seat can endure. So we're keeping it to at about 30 minutes. And um, we're also including a PDF of questions that you can print up to help you and your kids review what you've learned. Um, so I'm going to reintroduce Kristen. She is a millennial constitutionalist from Charleston, South Carolina, now residing in North Carolina. She holds a PhD in political science, but she is not your typical academic. She actually loves this country and loves liberty and will fight for it at all costs. And her goal... Um, with her liberty loving loving blog is education. Um, she seeks to arm fellow lovers of liberty with knowledge, knowledge that is painfully lacking and desperately needed, knowledge first and foremost of the Constitution. Because this is really interesting, you guys. The Constitution is our government's job description. And we are actually the government's employers 
So how can we hold our government accountable to their job if we don't even know their job description? So in part one, we covered three questions. Why do we have government? Why do we have constitution? And why does it matter if the government follows the constitution? So in this episode, we're going to be answering the last three questions on the printout. And so I'm just going to invite you, Kristen. Uh, Thank you for being here with us again. Definitely. Thanks for having me. All right, I'm just gonna open this up and let you move forward. Okay, cool. So this is my favorite part. This is my favorite part of the talk because I get to finally talk about the constitution. (laughs) Um, I I have to build the foundation before I get there because I think we don't value it as much as we would if we don't sort of uh, understand the, the the danger of arbitrary power and the importance of a standard, right? So now we get to actually see what the standard says, which is really exciting because we're now able to be privy to what the job description of government is. And, and we should be privy to it because we're the ones that should be keeping our government accountable to it. So um, I'm not gonna go through the entire constitution. That's a lot more <laughs> than we have time to go through. Um, so the reason I have my first question is, uh, I think it's like, what is why is Congress the most important branch of government? And the reason I put that on there is because um, we're just going to look at one section of the Constitution. It's Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. And if any of the listeners, any of your listeners would like to sort of follow along with the actual Constitution, you're welcome to look it up on the Internet and you'll see it's it's easy to find. If you go to Article 1, Section 8, that's what we're going through. And the reason I want to go through this is because it is the enumerated powers of the Constitution or for Congress. And Simply put, it's Congress's enumerated powers. So it's important to understand why Congress is the most important branch. Um, The founders considered it the preeminent branch. That's what they called it. That's what Madison called it. Um, And the reason it's considered the preeminent branch is because it's the legislature, right? And I always challenge my students, so what does legislature mean? Terms mean things, right? Legislature means, or legislate, means to make law. So the point or the job of the legislature is simply to make laws to protect us and our private property from each other, right? So if we go back to the first podcast, that's what we established is the goal or the end of government is to protect me and my private property from you and your private property. Well, the only way to do that is through law, right? So we have a branch of government equipped with making law to do that very job. If you think about it, the other two branches of government would have no job whatsoever if there were no legislative branch, because why would we have an executive branch if there were no laws to execute, right? Or why would we have a judicial branch if there were no laws to judge? So the linchpin of the entire government is Congress. So where Congress goes, the rest of government goes. If Congress is writing constitutional laws, the rest of the government is executing or judging them. Or if Congress is staying within the confines of the laws that they're allowed to write, the rest of the government is more likely to stay within the confines as well. So this enumerated power section of the Constitution is essentially everything our federal government can more or less do, right? Because it is the list of things, topics that our government can make law about. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. Okay. So um, this is, I think, really sort of basic, simple, but I find that a lot of kids have never really realized that. But when I sort of (laughs) enlighten them on the fact that, yeah, you don't have laws to execute if you don't have laws in the first place, it sort of all makes sense to them. It's like, oh, okay, that's why the legislature is so important. And along with the fact that the legislature makes laws, the legislature is also the one branch that's most connected to the people. 
if you think about the other branches of government outside of the president, there's not a single person in the executive or the judicial branch that is elected by the people. So the only branch of government that is 100% elected by the people is Congress. Only one person outside Congress is elected, right? So we, and the reason that this branch is elected is because it's the branch that makes law, right? So we want to have a direct connection to the one branch that is making law that's going to govern us, right? So anyway, now that we've answered that question, it's a pretty simple sort of just building block question. Um, it's important to now talk about what does the Constitution say based on this enumerated Article 1, Section 8, powers of Congress. And I always like to sort of preface this section a little bit with what the founders were thinking at the time. So when the Constitution was written, which was around 1786, 1787, um, it was the founders were looking at America under the Articles of Confederation. And I won't get into a whole bunch of details about the articles, but there was a lot of chaos. There was a lot of anarchy. There was a lot of sort of disunity going on because all the states were essentially acting as separate uh, nation states, right? And there was there was not a unified currency. There was no way to tax the um, states. The federal government really had no way to make money. The federal government had no executive branch or judicial branch, so it couldn't even execute the laws it did write. It couldn't hardly write laws. And there was this constant like turmoil. And there were a lot of the founders who were very concerned that our country would eventually devolve into utter chaos, which would eventually lead to tyranny, right? And that was the last thing they wanted. And they were very concerned about that. If, if history were to tell the story of how most revolutions end, most revolutions end poorly, right? Because mm -hmm. usually people are not very good with creating government. <laughs> so we were not, it's not like we knew how to create a government either. Um, we were blessed, but, you know, the Lord blessed us and we were able to, to create this constitution and the government we, ha we have now and stabilize. But there was a very precarious period from the end of the Revolutionary War to this period where the country very well could have just gone off the rails. And the founders saw this, and particularly the Federalists, those who promoted the Constitution, were very concerned about this. So as I go through these powers, these enumerated powers, I want you to think, I'm going to break it down this way, but think of it in terms of this is what we think is important for our federal government to have, powers we want the federal government to have in order to bring some unity and order to an otherwise chaotic society. Everything else we're going to leave to the states because the states are going to be much more equipped to take care of the local matters, to take care of all the things that affect the citizenry on a daily basis. But these couple things we think the federal government should have power over. Okay. So the first one is the federal government has power to lay and collect taxes. Okay. So Congress was given the explicit power that they can write laws that would lay and collect taxes. And this makes sense as the other government under the Articles of Confederation had no ability to do that. And honestly, you can't have a government that has no money, right? We do have to understand that in order for government to exist, there needs to be a means of, of, of it being paid to exist, right? So we created the government, therefore we must fund it. The power to lay and collect taxes, that makes sense. Borrow money on credit. The federal government or Congress, more explicitly, has the ability to write laws that allow them to borrow money on credit. That also makes sense because we really wouldn't want separate individual states borrowing money on credit, right? We don't want North Carolina borrowing money from China while Maine is borrowing money from Russia and we have this mess. So that should be a federal power. That makes sense. It kind of brings some stability. 
regulate commerce with foreign nations and among states. Again, this is pretty intuitive. That was a problem at the time when there's so many different forms of regulation, then there's a lot of chaos and that doesn't bring, you know, any sort of stability to the country. So this should be a federal power. The federal government is able to sort of regulate the means of trade between the country as a whole and another country or amongst the states to establish uniform rules of naturalization. Again, this also makes sense. If you're going to become an American citizen, you don't want to move to South Carolina and become a South Carolinian citizen, but you're not actually an American citizen or move to New York and you can't figure out a way to become an American citizen. Naturalization means immigration. So there should be a federal means or method for a a person to become an American citizen. The states can deal with the details, but the federal government should have a role. To coin money and regulate the value thereof. Again, we don't want states having the power to control the currency because you're going to have multiple different currencies and there's going to be a lot of confusion if there's so many different currencies. So this should be a congressional power. Punish counterfeiting. Since it is a federal power to create a currency, it makes sense that violating that currency would be a federal crime, right? So then again, Congress has the ability to write laws about that. To establish post offices and roads. Again, if you have multiple different post offices and roads that are regulated by various different states, there's going to be a lot of confusion. This should be sort of given to the federal government to create some stability and unity. To issue patents, copyrights for inventors and authors. This is probably the primary, one of the primary goals of the federal government, right? To protect private property. So if you write a book in South Carolina, you're going to be really bummed if you move to North Carolina and they can steal your book because the law is only available in South Carolina protecting your book. No, because the national government has this power. We're allowed to create things and be, you know, there's a lot of ingenuity that is allowed to explode in the U.S. because there's protection at the federal level so that you can create something or whatever it is that you do. And it's federally protected across the entire country, right? Um, to, cre- to create courts inferior to the Supreme Court, I think this is something a lot of people don't realize, but outside of the Supreme Court, every single federal court that exists is created by Congress, right? So um, the Supreme Court is, is created by the, the Constitution itself, but Congress is the one who created every other court, and Congress is the one who decides every other court's jurisdiction. Congress is the one that decides who and how many judges sit on the courts. I mean, Congress technically has the ability to eliminate as many of the courts as they wanted, and they actually have done so. So Congress holds a lot of power over the judici- judicial branch, which I think a lot of people don't realize. Congress actually has the ability to determine how many people are on the Supreme Court and the jurisdiction of what the Supreme Court is allowed to hear cases about. Um, Aside from a very few topics that are listed in the Constitution, Congress controls even what the Supreme Court hears or doesn't hear. Um, So Congress was given that power. Define and punish piracies. This should make sense because it's going to be difficult to sort of pinpoint at what part part of the ocean belongs to which state. (laughs) So this should be a national power, right? Um, To fix the standards of weight, weight and measures. This makes sense because because we want to have a uniform kind of system. Uh, I think we have, what is it, the imperial system? I think that's what it's called. So mm-hmm. we know that, you know, miles and, and uh, feet and all of that, we want to have some uniform uniformity there that's going to be a lot easier than if every state had a different metric uh, standard of weights and measures. So there's unity there. So Congress is allowed to make laws about that. Declare war. 
And I think we automatically think, okay, this idea of declaring war, now the tension usually exists between the executive branch and the legislative branch, right? Who is the one who's who's supposed to declare war? And we find that the executive branch is the one doing a lot of the war declaring, or at least the war waging, when mm-hmm. really Congress is the only one equipped to do that. Um, and they should be because they're the ones most directly connected to the people. They're the ones that, you know, if we're going to go enter into a conflict where we're going to fight and die, we should have a very strong say um, in that. Right. Like we, the people, we, we speak through our elected officials. Exactly. But the tension at the time when the constitution was written was not between the executive and, and the legislative. The tension was between the states and the federal. So they didn't want separate individual states declaring war on other countries. Right. So it would not work very well if Virginia decided to declare war on France and the other states weren't really on board with that, right? So mm-hmm. this should be a congressional, federal congressional power. That's why it was given to the federal government via the Constitution. Again, there should be, this should, I hope that people listening to this are starting to sort of get, <laughs> there's a regularity to this. There's something that obviously there's a logic to the way that the, the Constitution was put together. It was what is best to be held at a federal level to provide stability and unity? These are the things we believe will provide that. That's really it, right? And the tension exists between the state and the federal, not anything else. Um, and then we've got to raise and support armies to provide and maintain the Navy. And these two things, you can think of the Air Force, add that in. Obviously, they didn't have airplanes and stuff like that back then. But essentially, if we're going to function as a, as a unified country, and there's a war that is starting to be waged against us, it's very difficult for various different states with various different militias to come together and adequately defend the country. So the founders knew that it would be best to allow the the federal government, specifically Congress, to have the ability to write laws that would essentially fund and then equip an army of some sort to protect the country. Um, And then it says to provide for the calling forth of the militia. And the calling forth of the militia, there's been a lot of debate about that. But at the time, that was the state militia. So if the federal government felt the need to call forth the militia as well to the aid of the federal government, for whatever reason, Congress has the ability to do that. And in turn, has the ability to also provide for the organizing, arming, and disciplining of that militia. Today, you could almost say that that's the armed citizenry. You could say maybe it's the National Guard or something like that. There's a lot of debate about that since we don't technically have as much of a state militia we still have some um but more or less it's the ability of congress to sort of call into action those who are able to defend the country uh and then finally to exercise legislation over all places purchased by government and this this is very simply saying that congress has the ability to write laws that directly affect washington dc it wasn't washington dc at the time but it would basically be the federal federal lands more or less right um so and then article one section eight concludes with the necessary and proper clause now i don't have you heard any of the conflict about the necessary and proper clause or is that something not as familiar to you no i've never heard of that okay so the necessary and proper clause is a constantly used and abused phrase because a lot of people love to say, well, and if you hear, and I will say this to any moms listening, if you hear any of your politicians say, well, we can, you know, we can write laws and welfare because it's necessary and proper for us to do so. That is a very complete perversion of what the constitution says. And it is used consistently all the time throughout history as a ways 
is basically a means of justifying unconstitutional action, but it's completely taken out of context. So the phrase says, to make all laws which shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers. So the critical point here is <laughs> a lot of people want to just say, well, it shall be necessary and proper to do whatever we want. When in fact it says everything I just listed out was not a law. It was a explicit enumerated power, right? Um, so basically this little section is concluding with a statement that Congress is equipped to make any law that's necessary and proper to carry out the foregoing, meaning the mentioned powers that were just, you know, written above. Right. Anything that's necessary to carry out those powers, Congress is equipped to make laws about. That's it. It's mm -hmm. not saying you can make laws about whatever they want. That's definitely not it. Right. Right. Um, it's a blanket so, statement to justify arbitrary yes. government. People love to take it way out of context when really, and the founders, there are specific quotes where the founders say that is not at all what we were saying. We were saying mm -hmm. Congress, it, it would never be divided from the enumerated powers mentioned before. Right. Congress right. is supposed to be equipped to make laws that would carry out those powers that were mentioned before. Right. right. So <clears throat> these are the enumerated powers, right? They are delegated to the legislature and the legislature can only make laws about these specific topics. This is Congress's job description. This is basically our federal government's job description right here in a nutshell. And so I think <laughs> the question then becomes, let me read this. I'm going to read this quote by Madison because I think this is a beautiful quote, but then I, I want to sort of kind of blow people's minds a little bit. Um, so James Madison says, the powers of the federal government are enumerated. It can only operate in certain cases. It has legislative powers on defined and limited objects beyond which it cannot extend its jurisdiction, right? And that's critical because we've just talked about what arbitrary power would mean, and that would be a government moving outside of its limited jurisdiction. Now the question is, now we know what our government's powers are, right? We, we understand the federal government's power. Very, very few powers, right? <laughs> which yeah. should surprise a lot of people. and. Let's think about it. Is healthcare mentioned in there, right? Or right. education, or mm -hmm. welfare, or marriage, mm -hmm. or social mm -hmm. security, or business regulation, or police? And I could go on and on and on, right? Not a single one of those things was mentioned in that list of enumerated powers. And yet I can guarantee you, probably most conservatives don't even know that, mm -hmm. right? We're so accustomed to a government that's operating so dangerously outside of its confined powers that we don't even realize the majority of the laws written are anything but what our federal government was actually designed to do. Mm -hmm. Meaning everything I just listed there is supposed to be states. Because the whole goal was that these states are much more well-equipped to take care of issues like healthcare or education or welfare, or marriage, or social security, or crime for that matter. Literally, the only crime the federal government is, is allowed to police, basically, is counterfeiting. Um, there's very few other crimes, maybe treason, that are supposed to be handled by the federal government. So even, even our crime fighting is completely off base with what the Constitution would have allowed the federal government to do. Um, wow. I hope this is I hope this is making sense or sort of gelling a little bit. It's making sense. And and what I'm thinking though is I mean the message that I'm getting from it, you can't exactly like reverse what's already happened, but you can certainly stop 
more overreach from happening. hundred percent. Yeah. No, that, that they're already outside of their jurisdiction and to really be diligent about limiting that government. Yes. And stopping automatically turning to the federal government when really, really most of our problems should be turned to the state government, right? Or the local governments. Because right. aside right. from those couple issues I just mentioned and the enumerated powers, anything else that we deal with, we really should turn to our state governments for. Um, but we've sort of gotten so much in the habit as American citizens, conservatives, liberals alike, of turning to the federal government to solve all of our problems when mm -hmm. that's not what the federal government's job ever was. No. And they're not good have, at it. <laughs> and they're definitely not good at it. They're not able to, to figure out what's best for the entire, there is no one uniform way to solve a problem. Every no. state is going to be different, right? So it's an impossible yeah. task. We're asking them to do something yeah. impossible, which basically said we're asking them to be God and they're not God. And they're not exactly. God, right? And we're we're asking them to act outside of their job description, which is essentially mm -hmm. saying, "Hey, government, you have the power to do whatever you want," right? Right. Um, right. And this is where, so this is the kind of the section that I think is the most fun. How much time do we have? Because I want to make sure that I'm I'm careful not to like um, five to ten minutes. Okay, so I'll try to be as concise as possible, but. This is where I really want to encourage moms listening and anyone else who is, you know, really wanting to change the way that you approach talking about politics. Because, yes, there is the idea of who are we going to appeal to, but also our discussions and our understanding of politics really affects things. And it affects the way our representatives, are, you know, represent us and it affects those around us. And I think our understanding of the Constitution in in relation to the Bill of Rights have been sort of skewed. And I've, I've noticed that a lot of times when people discuss the Constitution or they discuss the government has done something, quote, unconstitutional, they typically mean the Bill of Rights, right? Right. People don't really know what the Constitution says. So people don't really realize the enumerated powers that I just went through and the way that our federal government has egregiously violated that. Most people are sort of honed in on these Bill of Rights. Well, as long as people aren't, as long as the federal government's not violating these Bill of Rights, they haven't violated the Constitution. And that couldn't be further from the truth, right? And this is the, this is the sort of interesting uh, sort of misunderstanding that I think we have with the Bill of Rights and the Constitution, because the Constitution does not exist to list out our rights. And the Constitution is not the Bill of Rights. The Bill of Rights was added as an amendment to the Constitution a couple of years after the Constitution existed. Um, and the key point here is that we have rights regardless of the government and the Constitution. The Constitution merely tells government that it cannot make laws that would in turn hinder those already existent rights. Because we have liberty, right? The government does, does, doesn't exist to guarantee us rights. It essentially exists to protect us in our private property so that other people can't violate our rights. Right. The government and these, itself, are, these are inherent rights. They're not right. ones the government has given to us. Exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. They already exist. So um, how do I put this in a way that makes perfect sense? There were a group of founders, particularly the Federalists, who did not like the idea of a Bill of Rights. They were pretty adamantly against it. You know, that seems to blow a lot of people's minds because we seem to kind of worship the Bill of Rights and forget the Constitution, right? But let me let me read this quote here for those listening. And, and maybe I could share with you these quotes so that um, 
your yeah. listeners yes, could, could read them for themselves because mm-hmm. it's a lot. There's a lot of good information. This is written by a um, professor at I think he's Bo- he's at Boston University, and he says his name is Dr. Lawson. He says, um, in sum, the Constitution's framers thought that a Bill of Rights was appropriate appropriate for an unlimited government. Okay but not for a limited one, like the national government created by the Constitution. The Constitution accordingly sought to secure liberty through enumerations of powers to the government rather than through enumerations of rights to the people. Mm-hmm. It remains a government of limited and enumerated powers so that the first question involving an exercise of federal power is not whether it violates someone's rights but whether it exceeds the national government's enumerated powers. And this is where our language has sort of gotten off. We always look at, has it violated our rights? That's not the point. The point is, has it violated the enumerated powers, right? Because technically, the Bill of Rights shouldn't even be needed. Alexander Hamilton says this. He says, the Bill of Rights would contain various exceptions to powers not granted. And on this very account would afford a colorable pretext to claim more than were granted. For why declare that things shall not be done, which there is no power to do? And this is where the rub came in. This is why certain founders did not like the Bill of Rights, because here's the thing. There is nowhere in that list of enumerated powers the ability to violate any of the things listed in the Bill of Rights, not to mention anything else. And if we only have 10 rights, right? We have way more than 10 rights. So... The point is, if our federal government stayed within the enumerated powers, we would never, ever worry about our guns or worry about our free speech, right? Mm-hmm. So why tell the government that it can't make laws about something that it can't make laws about? Right? Mm-hmm. That is a really critical question. And when we look exclusively at the Bill of Rights, we're insinuating that the government can make laws about any and everything at once. Because we're telling them they can't make laws about something they already can't make laws about, right? right. Yeah, that makes total sense. Like that's already been established, what it is they <laughs> can make laws about. So why are we telling them? Why, are we, why would Bill of Rights even be necessary? Exactly. If they're, if they're following those enumerated powers, they're never going to make a law, right? I, I, I think this quote puts it really well. It says, the Bill of Rights was considered unnecessary because the national government was a limited government that could only exercise those powers granted to it by the Constitution. And it had been granted no power to violate the most cherished rights of the people, mm. right? And so what's happened now is the Bill of Rights is basically a fail-safe to the Constitution, right? If the federal government chooses to act outside of the powers enumerated to it, the amendments begin to play a bigger role. So we know that if the federal government ever starts threatening those Bill of Rights, it has gone way past its power within those enumerated powers, right? Because it's violating plenty of other rights, because I guarantee you we don't have just 10 rights. Uh, We kind of act like we do, but there are plenty more, right? So if it ever made it to free speech or if it makes it to buns, it's gone way past its powers beyond that, right? Mm-hmm. And so we kind of have to, I think it's helpful to us to change our understanding and our language of, oh, well, it's our, it's our First Amendment right. No, it's not our First Amendment right. We have liberty because we have liberty. The First Amendment basically tells the federal government, you cannot create a law that would violate an already existent right we have, right? Mm-hmm. And that technically shouldn't even be necessary because if we were keeping them accountable to those enumerated powers, 
they would never be able to write a law violating our First Amendment or violating right. free speech, right? So is it kind um, of like a backup plan that we've leaned too hard into? It, it's very much so, yes. Okay. Um, and that's sort of the danger. And that's why we we could see the fact that we have the Bill of Rights um, as in the fact that we're sort of leaning so hard against them as a very dire sign, right? Um, this This quote by Dr. Lawson, he says, the Bill of Rights might have a value as a kind of backstop in case the original Constitution's meaning gets too deranged. In mm. modern times, the enumerated powers of the national government have been misread beyond all recognition mm -hmm. to the point that the actual Constitution is not really part of the governing structure at all. We live with a shadow or zombie Constitution that has the outer husk of the original document, but none of its actual substance. Therefore, mm. the enumerated powers are misconstrued and weight falls on the rest of the Constitution, most notably the Bill of Rights, to restore to some very modest degree the original balance of power. Right. right. So, and this is sort of that critical difference between the Bill of Rights and the, and the you know, Constitution. The Constitution is a standard and it's a job description for government. The Constitution protects our liberty. The Bill of Rights protects 10 rights, specifically eight, because the final two reiterate that the Constitution is preeminent. <laughs> right, so, right. Um, yeah, and that's where I really like to emphasize that for people is, is it's super critical for us to focus and really want to work to educate people on the enumerated powers of the Constitution so that we're no longer focusing on has my right been violated? Because I tell you what, if your right's been violated, the government's gone way past their enumerated powers. Right, right. The question needs to be, has our government done something outside of its job description? First, right. right. I first feel question. Like defense versus offense. A hundred percent. Yes. And how many legislators actually go up to Washington, D.C. and sit down and when they're getting ready to write a law, they actually have the Constitution next to them and they say, OK, is this filling it? You know, does this fit with my right. job description? Because mm -hmm. I can guarantee probably not a single one of them does. I, I talked with a guy who was who was running for Congress. Um, I won't I won't name who it is, but. I asked him, you know, have you read the Constitution? This was back in like October. And he was like, oh, I read that thing a few times. I probably should read it. But I decided I thought I'd lose weight first and then I'd read the Constitution. <laughs> and I was like, he has no desire to read it because no one, no one cares. Mm -hmm. You know, we, we haven't cared enough to want to keep him accountable to it. So why does he care to stay accountable to it? If you think about this COVID relief bill that just got passed, it's 100% unconstitutional. I don't even know that there's a constitutional bone in the whole in the whole article. And I, mm -hmm. I wonder to, you know, I think, what are these lawmakers thinking when they sit down to write these bills? They're certainly not thinking, what's my job? Or what's my job description? Right, right. They're, I don't know, they're just coming up with ideas out of thin air that they have power to do it, as if well, they have power to do it. So I'm thinking um, the big one of the big messages here is know who your representatives are, know what they 100%. stand for, hold their feet to the fire. Um, mm -hmm. I have been doing so much more over the last couple of months, and specifically the last several weeks, and I have gotten responses. Um, it's it's surprising to me because many of them say they rarely hear from anybody. That should yeah. not. We should be letting them know when, you know, when we're not in agreement with something or when they've done something good, you know, if I, you know, the representative mm -hmm. held me back and said, you know, look, we've got this going through. We think it's going to grow through. It's going to limit the governor's emergency powers and, mm -hmm. uh, which 
could be because he has definitely stepped over the line. Um, that person is working on my behalf. That person is working for we, the people, because I know right. a lot of people in this area and that's what they would want. Mm -hmm. And so that man is doing his job. And so yeah. that's, we need to just be a lot more in tune and it's, it's work. But like you said, Liberty is work to keep oh, our yeah. liberty is going to take some work. The cool thing is that is that as homeschooling parents, we can bring our kids right alongside of them and teach mm -hmm. them how we go. Mm -hmm. you know, I'm yeah. learning more. I'm conveying this not only to our only son who's still at home because we've graduated seven of our eight kids. Um, I talked mm -hmm. to our homeschool about it. And they're asking me questions, you know, what about this? What about this one? Well, I don't, if I don't have the answer, I just say, well, I'm going to find that out for you. Cause you know, yeah, I mean, yeah. kid, she's busy, but she wants to know. So I'm going to get that information to her. And so mm -hmm. I, with the way things are right now, what's the biggest word of encouragement that you could give to the listeners? I mean, what, if you could tell them anything or encourage them in any way, what would it be? Well, there's multiple things. So there's like a call to action encouragement. And then there is the um, just sort of theoretical large scale encouragement. I'll go with that one. And if you want me to do the call to action, I will. I think the thing that encourages me is the fact that we still we're still free. I mean, we're we're remarkably free. Um, right. And that is a huge testament to the fact that there is still even in the middle of this incredibly um, you know, I would say deranged way that our constitution is treated by government. There is still this um, reverence, I would say, for the constitution that exists, mm -hmm. no matter how much there's this, you know, push for new progressive agendas, new this, new that. There's still the the need that people on the left and the right feel to reference the constitution for their actions, or there's still the reverence that citizens have, even on the left and the right, to, to bring it up in conversation because it still holds holds power. And this is the key, the key point I like to make, and I, I've made it a bunch in my blog, which is that um, the Constitution is only as powerful as we make it, right? So we, because we reverence it, it's literally a piece of paper, because we reverence it, it, it holds power. And the hopeful thing is that right now, even in the middle of everything, it still holds power. If you get pulled over by a police officer, you're not stuck. You actually have a constitution to reference and appeal to. That's a big deal. Even if there's just a zombie constitution left, there's a zombie constitution, right? A zombie right. constitution sure is better than no constitution. And that's mm -hmm. what I try to emphasize is we have something still. We're still free. We're beautifully free, right? Um, and that's a hopeful thing because we still have something to work with. We could be in a much worse, a much worse circumstance, right? Um, mm -hmm. And uh, that gives me that gives me hope, and the, and the fact that we still have the ability to affect our legislators. And like you said, I think that's incredibly important. And I think it's 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 particularly important to focus on our state legislators and our local politicians because they, if they know the job of the federal government compared to their job. And they right. realize just how much the federal government has been stepping all over their their you know realm of power. They're our, our biggest hope to sort of either push back or limit or pull back a lot of that federal power, right? Right. Um, right. And 
that's a really hopeful thing to me because I think that local politicians are much more accessible. I think local politicians are much more, you know, willing to listen. And, and the beauty is government wants power and state government wants power. So they're going to be willing to fight for that power if they realize that it's been taken from them unconstitutionally, right? I think a lot of them don't know it, which is why I think this type of information is incredibly important to sort of disseminate because people need to know. <laughs> but if they know and they realize and there's a, enough reverence for the Constitution to begin with and, and a realization that it's a standard and it can't be violated uh, or shouldn't be violated, I think change could happen, but I think it is a slow process, you know, and I it think is it's something process. that requires patience. Yeah. We didn't get here overnight. So it's no, <laughs> no. But I also think that, you know, I think about the moms out there, they're busy with their families and all of that, but opportunity does arise. Mm -hmm. Even as we're out and about and talking to people, I talk to people all the time. Uh, I find myself as I'm, as I'm listening to more of this and educating myself more, it's more on the forefront of my mind and I'm able to hold that conversation with people and just mm -hmm. in a very like relational way, educate them. Um, yeah. And that can happen just in your day to day as you go along, as you become, like I said, more and more educated, more and more aware. And so um, it doesn't have to be something that you necessarily seek out. You might be passionate about it and want to do that. But um, but I would just encourage you to pray about it and just be watching for opportunities. And again, just absorbing really good information. And so, Kristen, I'm so thankful that you shared with us today because I um, I love how like straightforward the information that you gave us was. There's so much information out there and to not have yeah. to sit through all of that and go, okay, this is, this is the deal. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. I really, really appreciate that. So, um, so thank you again for being mm -hmm. here today. Yeah. And thank you for having me. We will go ahead and uh, like I said, we'll, we'll put in the quotes, the ways to connect with Kristen and also uh, a link to her book so that you all can check out her resources. So um, again, thanks for being here and uh, I hope everyone has a great day. Mm -hmm.